Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, Remaining Steadfast in Distressing Times, with a message entitled, The Life That Hope Produces. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 5 to 10, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. on more than one occasion encountered Christians who say something that sounds like this. I know that Christ will return again, but those things will take care of themselves in due time. I'm just paying attention to what Christ wants of my life right now. You know, I trust him. I pray to him. I try to remain faithful. I'm learning to love my brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm learning how to spread his love all around a needy world. That end time stuff, well, I just don't spend a lot of time thinking about that. And if that's you, I hope if you've been listening to me by now, you're getting a sense that's not enough. You're lacking the perseverance of hope. Or to put it another way, you don't have the secret sauce as to how to remain steadfast in distressing times. No one can remain faithful or steadfast without a robust hope that dominates our thinking and our praying. Let me ask you a couple of questions. Who goes to work without the hope of collecting a paycheck and throughout that building a life? Who only thinks about the present without a thought of what our actions will bring us in the future? Who spends years in a university or trade school without the thought of a future? Who raises children without thinking about what they will become in the future? See, God designed us to think about the future. The God who says that he's the Alpha and the Omega, that he is the beginning and the end, well, he has created us in his image. See, we think about the future because God thinks about the future. Look at it this way. When we think about the past, whether our own personal history or, you know, maybe it's the history of our country or even the history of our faith, we are led to reflect and understand God made us to think about the past and to put the past in a framework of meaning. And that's being made in the image of God. So then also, when we think about the future, if we are to be hopeful, we had better find a reason to be hopeful. I mean, that hope had better be filled with details and answers to the strongest doubts and the uncertainties we face. Look, you either think of the future as a pessimist or an optimist. And so the second coming of our Lord and the details that surround that hope are the details that fill and dominate Christians' thinking. You know, unfortunately, so many people suppress the human desire to have hope. Now, that's because for many people, there's no realistic reason for hope for them. I mean, tell me how a man or woman who has no hope in the resurrection or hope in the second coming or has no hope in the consummation of all things, how does that person deal with the the passing of years and and the waning of their strength and health? I mean, how do they deal with that? I mean, the answer is they don't. They suppress hope. Instead, in its place, I mean, they lie to themselves. I hear unbelieving people say they wouldn't want to live eternally, that the reality of their own death brings meaning to all they do today. So I guess death is okay then. And furthermore, since they don't have to worry about the life to come, well, they don't have to prepare for an afterlife, and they're not going to be held accountable in the afterlife. Here's my response. Folly. You know, how can one argue with the words of Solomon in Ecclesiastes 9 verse 4, where he says that a living dog is better off than a dead lion? 
Well, he means to say, soon as you die without an eternal hope, everything becomes nothing. You aren't remembered. What you've done is meaningless. It won't matter that you've ever existed. Is there any wonder why there's so much despair in this world? But with the idea that all roads lead to a cul-de-sac, that no journey is even slightly meaningful, and all future days are only filled with the dying of the light, with that comes hopelessness and faithlessness. You know, we've been studying 1 Thessalonians, and I hope I've been able to communicate why this church was steadfast in very dark days. There was in their hearts a passionate anticipation, a a living anticipation that the days of Christ's coming was around the door and that they would participate in the greatest moment of history. That's not even saying it well. They were awaiting their active part in the entire purpose for all of creation. When Jesus establishes his kingdom and they are made inheritors of all that is his. But again, I can almost hear the critics If our thoughts and the things we imagine, our greatest aspirations, our fondest dreams, are taken up in the day of the Lord Jesus, does that not take away from, you know, paying attention to to full and vibrant living today? Well, to answer that, let's consider the kind of life that hope produces. I'm reading here 1 Thessalonians 5, 5 to 11. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. You know, in the previous passage, Paul had been reminding the the Thessalonian believers of something they already knew. To them, Jesus would not come as a thief in the night. They were expecting him. And so they were not in darkness so that the coming day would surprise them. But then in our passage today, we find out what impact their future hope would have on the way in which they live their lives today. So notice in verse 5, Paul calls the believers children of light and children of the day. He contrasts that with those who are children of the night or children of the darkness. Christians, says Paul, not only are anticipating the light of Jesus coming, we're already living in light today. That is, since our hope is wrapped up in the second coming, the way we live today demonstrates the hope that we have. Now, from that, in verses 6 to 10, Paul then gives three directives for hope-filled Christians. The first directive is found in verse 6. It says, let us not sleep, but keep awake. So that's directive number one. That is, this is the life that produces hope. Then directive number two from verse 8, let us be sober and not drunk. And then from verse 11, the directive to encourage one another. That is to say, when our hope is firmly established, it results in these three virtues, being awake, being sober, and being encouraging. So let's look at them one at a time. First, let's not sleep, but let's stay awake. You know, we already noticed that Paul has contrasted the life of believers with unbelievers. Unbelievers, he says, live in darkness. That is, they're not only unaware of the Lord's return, but they also live in moral darkness, believing that there is no day of reckoning to come. 
Now, it is clear when Paul says that we must stay awake, he doesn't want to be taken literally. He's, he's using metaphors here. So, so what does he mean? So the image is not that of someone who never goes to bed at night. Rather, it's an image of a watchman who's fallen asleep while he's supposed to have been guarding. Um, We might think of what Jesus taught in Matthew 24, verses 42 to 44. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect." And so Paul's appealing for constant vigilance, always watchful, always aware that the coming of the Lord is at hand. There is an anticipation in him. Let me use an example. You know, I've been asked, do you think that the coronavirus, the pandemic which has spanned the globe, could in some way lead to the political situation in which the world might long for global governance and that this could pave the way for the Antichrist and of the second coming of Jesus? Well, my answer is, I I don't know if it would, but I know it could. I'm always aware that all the events that surround the return of our Lord are imminent. They could come tumbling into our day at any moment, far quicker than we had ever imagined. And so the idea of staying awake is not the same as, you know, jumping to conclusions or being gullible. not that, but we're always watchful. We're imagining under what kind of circumstances our Lord might return. But those who are asleep have stopped thinking about these things, and for them, life goes on as before. Those who are asleep don't think that God owns this world, and that God is determined that this world will become that for which he created it. I mean, those thoughts never enter their minds. It's not occurred to them that the resurrection of Jesus has a great deal to say about the future of our planet and about our own future. But those who are awake, well, they're awaiting and watching and anticipating that day when the great Messiah returns and establishes an eternal kingdom that will never pass away. I hope you've enjoyed today's Back to the Bible Canada message with Dr. John. If you have, I want to encourage you to check out a new weekly video Bible teaching program featuring Dr. John that can be viewed on backtothebible.ca or by visiting the Back to the Bible Canada YouTube channel. And if you want to receive notice each week of a new episode and receive the accompanying study guide, you can sign up online. The first series presented and can be viewed in its entirety is Hope in Dark Times. And Dr. John's second and new series based on Revelation chapter 1 to 7 is entitled To the One Who Conquers and Has Already Begun. So check it out now at backtothebible.ca or on the Back to the Bible Canada YouTube channel. For more information or to support the ongoing ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, would you call us at 1-800-663-2425 or donate securely online at backtothebible.ca. The second injunction that we find in our passage is that we should remain sober. Those who get drunk, says Paul, get drunk at night. Night is the time for spiritual darkness. It's also the time when we're most apt to sin against God. 
We're children of the day, he says, not of the night. But when Paul speaks of being sober, he's, he's using an analogy of someone who's aware of their surroundings. They're, they're alert, they're self-controlled, and they don't engage in irresponsible behavior. And so in order to illustrate that, Paul uses the image of a Roman soldier who's put on his armor. Now, for those of you who are biblically literate, and that immediately reminds you of a very similar passage, one that comes up in Ephesians chapter 6. There, using the imagery of a Roman soldier's military equipment, Paul tells believers to put on the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, shoes fit for readiness to preach the gospel, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit. Now, here in 1 Thessalonians, the image is not that developed, and it has fewer pieces of military equipment. You know, indeed, Paul only presents two pieces of military equipment here, that that of the breastplate and that of the helmet. And as you know, the breastplate protected both the front of the body and also the back as well, and it, it would prevent the soldier from receiving a blow to their vital organs. And we also notice that in Ephesians 6, Paul called the breastplate the breastplate of righteousness. You know, in Paul's thinking there, righteousness is a gift that is given to us through the atonement of Jesus. We've received his righteousness. So you want to protect that. You you want to protect that even as you'd want to protect your vital organs. Now, here in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 8, it's a breastplate of faith and love. Now, we also know that when he speaks of the helmet, unlike Ephesians where it's the helmet of salvation, here in Thessalonians, it's a helmet of hope. Now, I don't think the point of the analogy is why the breastplate is related to faith and love and why the helmet is related to hope. Paul is using the example of a soldier who's preparing for battle. And you have to imagine if the soldier is drunk, it's very different than a soldier who's awake and sober and well-armed and completely aware of his surroundings. In order to be prepared for the battle ahead, good soldiers will take care to clothe themselves in faith and hope and in love. And according to 1 Corinthians 13, 13, those three are the things that endure. But here in 1 Thessalonians, these virtues are needed to fight the battle ahead. Now, because Paul places faith and love in the breastplate, and then he leaves hope until the last with a specific piece of armor for that, we, we know that he's emphasizing hope. There's a war out there for your faith. Like a good soldier, you don't want to fall asleep or the battle is going to overtake you. But you also want to be prepared and hope is an essential piece of your armor. So why is that important? Well, the answer is found in verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, let's put that statement into the context of what the Thessalonian believers were experiencing. You know, as we've seen, the minute they surrendered their lives to Christ, the citizens in Thessalonica thought that they were dangerous. And so a riot ensued in the city. A man named Jason, a Christian man, was called to pay a large security bond ensuring peace in the city. And from that day forward, Christians were viewed with suspicion. So when Paul says God has not destined them for wrath, is that the kind of wrath that he was talking about? I don't think so. See, we know that Jesus suffered from the wrath of both the Jewish religious leaders and the Roman authorities. We know that when Paul wrote to the Philippian believers, he promised them, that's in Philippians 1.29, that Christ had not only called them to believe in Jesus, but also to suffer for his sake. 
So again, the wrath of hostile people to the faith is a part of our experience. Or think of Paul's words in 2 Timothy chapter 3, 12, and 13, where Paul writes, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So, on this side of eternity, it's going to seem that the unrighteous appear to be winning and God's people are being abused. Of course, we could go even further. We could examine the long history of Christian persecution. We could pay special attention to the, to the modern era. Go to a website like Open Doors or listen to a BBC report from 2019. It estimated that global Christian persecution is now at, and I put their words before you, what they called near-genocide levels. I mean, to argue, as some do, that 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 9 is a promise that we will not suffer under the wrath of earthly governments or mobs of lawless people or even the orchestration of great end-time evil. Well, listen, that doesn't square with the facts. No, no. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 9 is not a promise that the great hours of persecution will be kept from us. You know, if that were what was promised, well, then quite frankly, that would contradict so much of Scripture. But it would also contradict that which is plainly happening today, and for that matter, all through history. I mean, read the stories of the Reformation and of the burning of God's people. Read the stories of the first century and of the madman Nero who had Christians attached to poles, then smeared with tar, then lit on fire just to entertain his dinner guests in the evening. Read about what happened in Uganda in the last century when President Idi Amin ordered his tanks to drive over the heads of Christian leaders. I mean, to argue from this text that God would never allow horrific suffering against his people, well, it's ignorant at best and it's dangerous at worst. For then we would be promising God's people that they would not suffer under the wrath of men. And then when the day of wrath comes, for it indeed will, we would then not understand that God had kept his promise. See, what then does 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 9 teach us? For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, notice the verse begins with the word for. You know, this connects this verse to verses 6 to 8. Let's be awake. Let's be sober. Let's put on our weapons of warfare, which are faith, hope, and love, with the emphasis on hope. Ah, What is our hope? Is it for good things in this world? I, I, I say it's not. Is it not for good things in the world to come when Jesus returns in power and in glory? But as we saw in our study yesterday, the coming day of the Lord will not mean the same for everybody. I think the very best example of that is found in Amos chapter 5, verses 18 to 20. It says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into a house and leaned his hand against a wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light, and gloom with no brightness in it? Yeah, Amos was talking to those who wanted the day of the Lord, but were unwilling to repent of their sins. And in keeping with the themes of the New Testament, Jesus said, Matthew 24, verse 30, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, he said. And they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. They will mourn. They will be filled with terror. They will gasp 
in agony. I mean, given this, who could stand in the great and terrible day of the Lord? And Paul answers that to all believers who've surrendered their lives into the hands of Jesus. Listen, you who've repented of your sins, you who trust in Christ's death on the cross for you, listen, God did not appoint you for wrath. You were appointed for salvation. And that's why believers can go through any heartache today. Never give up. They know that God has not destined us for wrath on the final day, but our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. We're destined for salvation. Now, we've said that there have been three exhortations or three directives in this passage. In light of the return of Jesus, we are to stay awake, always be watchful. Second, we are to remain sober, says Paul, always aware of what's happening, ready for the day of battle. And now, thirdly, we are to take the opportunity to encourage our fellow believers with the promise of the second coming. Look again at verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. See, it's so important that, you know, whether it's in a formal fashion, maybe it's in Sunday morning in church, or maybe it's some weekday evening in a home Bible study meeting, or maybe it's just in an everyday conversation with a fellow believer, we are called upon by Scripture itself that we should continue to remind one another that the coming of the Lord will soon be at hand. So therefore, because we have this hope, it's possible to carry on. It's possible to be fervent and to be faithful no matter our circumstances. Thanks so much, John. No, there's some that would say if we concentrate too much time on the second coming, we distract ourselves from our earthly responsibilities. You know, the too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good. What do you think? Well, I'm going to say quite the opposite. I'm going to say those who are too earthly minded are of no earthly good at all because they can't lift their eyes from what they see right in front of their noses. They don't ever get a sense of the big picture. To be heavenly-minded, if we think of it properly, means that we live in anticipation of our Lord's return. And because we're living in anticipation, we recognize that God is going to renew all things. We know what the earth is for. And so we keep our eyes on the prize and we keep on working for that that thing. So I'm going to say, uh, if we only focus on this world, what sorry people we will become, let's never be too earthly-minded to be of earthly good. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. June is one of the most significant months of the year financially for Back to the Bible Canada. Like every family, individual, and organization across the country, We've had to take steps to adjust our expenses so that all the Bible teaching resources you've come to expect remain available right across the country at no charge. And because of a group of generous donors who share our hearts for Bible teaching, they've committed to doubling your gift this month. The ministry budget target for our fiscal year end is $365,000. Could we ask you to pray that we might meet this target? And if you're able, acknowledging the very real challenges many of us are facing, would you provide a financial gift toward this goal? Remember, every dollar you give will be matched up to $95,000 so that your gift has doubled the impact. 
To make your fiscal year-end gift today, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.